0: Hey guys, so today I'm here with uh, Stephen Guillenet. He's the author of a book called The Hungry Brain about the uh, science of overeating. Uh, Stephen's actually a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was one of my first parkour students and it was kind of a funny situation because we'd end up talking about diet, nutrition, and evolution after class. And we have like a whole group of people who just sit around and watch us talk for an hour. <laughs> so we became friends after that and uh we've gotten together and and had chats for years and i just think that he has a really amazing take on on the science of reading that is really poorly understood and when you understand the brain the way that stefan does and the implications about a reading it actually has major implications about the way that we deal with life in general so we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about what's in the book and then kind of getting beyond that scope into what understanding kind of the reward hypothesis about diet, tells us about the way that we engage in movement, the way we engage in our social lives, the way we engage with technology. So, Steven, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about The Hungry Brain. What What is it about and what drove you to uh, write it?
1: Yeah, so um, it's about the neuroscience of overeating. And um, the basic thing that drove me to write it was the gap that I perceived between the what the scientific literature had to say about eating behavior and body fatness and the common um, general understanding of that in the, po- in the general population. So um, my background is in uh, biochemistry and neuroscience and most recently I've applied that neuroscience to the study of eating behavior and obesity and Essentially, um, I feel like those fields provide um, extremely profound insights into why we eat too much and why we accumulate body fat. And I saw that most people were not um, were not getting those insights. And so um, one of the, I mean, the most basic of those insights that I think is is really just common sense but a lot of people really haven't incorporated into their worldview around eating behavior is that all behavior is generated by the brain and so and not just all behavior but all feelings all impulses all cravings all of those things are generated by brain activity and so once you realize that you realize that the brain is really a very useful frame for thinking about um, eating behavior and, and obesity. And so um, that's essentially what I did with my book is I tried to bring all that science and that framework of looking at eating behavior and obesity um, in a way that's never really been done before in a general audience book.
0: So let's make it really simple for the audience. Low
1: carb or low fat? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny question, but I think it does kind of get into some pretty important topics that I deal with in the book, and um, I think to start to approach this topic, uh, a good way to do it is to acknowledge that both of those approaches can be effective, and if you want to have a worldview that can explain all of the evidence, it has to be able to explain both of those observations. It has to explain the fact that randomized controlled trials of low-fat diets show that it promotes uh, reduced calorie intake and weight loss, and the more you restrict fat, the more of a weight loss you get, and conversely, the exact same thing is true of low-carbohydrate diets. Uh, low-carbohydrate diets and randomized controlled trials cause weight loss, and the more you restrict carbohydrate, the more weight loss you get. And so the hypothesis that carbohydrate is bad and it's fattening, and the less of it we eat, the more weight we lose, is simply not consistent with the entirety of the evidence, and neither is the hypothesis that it's all about fat, and the less of that we eat, the more weight we're going to lose. So um, I think you have to come up with a worldview that incorporates all of that evidence. And that is, in a sense, um, that's not dominated by macronutrients. It acknowledges that macronutrients can matter, but it's not dominated by macronutrients. And so um, that perspective kind of, I like to zoom out to, um, you. Ha- really it forces you to zoom out to more macro level um, Principles that apply to both low-carb and low-fat diets and can explain both of those phenomena
0: Yeah So I believe that you know, You described the that, 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 that most people in the obesity research community to something they call the reward hypothesis Can you describe to the audience a little bit what the reward hypothesis is and why that maybe explains why both a low-carb and a low-fat diet can actually be effective approaches to weight loss
1: Yeah, so, and I just want to start off by saying that it's usually not discussed explicitly as the reward hypothesis. That is my attempt to kind of make it more explicit for the purposes of discussing it and evaluating it. Um, But there's, yeah, there's definitely uh, a very strong prevailing belief that food reward, and I'll, I'll get into what that is in a second, is a major driver of um, excess calorie intake and excess body fatness. And so reward is this concept that um, it has three components. It is our motivation, it's our learning to be motivated, and it's pleasure. And so I think one concept that encompasses all of that and makes it easy to, for us to understand is seductiveness. So very high reward foods are foods that are very seductive. And so, for example, uh, plain boiled potatoes or plain celery or plain lentils, plain almost anything is pretty low reward. Um, it's not something that is going to stimulate your motivation to eat it um, it's not a food that has a very high intrinsic motivational value. So if you're hungry, you'll eat a plain boiled potato. But if you're not hungry, you won't eat a plain boiled potato. If you're not hungry, you may eat a molten chocolate cake. You know?
0: I was thinking about you yesterday, actually. I was, re- I was reading the book, and, uh, and yesterday I had the main potatoes. And, uh, that always makes me think of you. So I made potatoes, and I had duck fat and duck broth leftover, and so I makes duck fat and duck broth, salt and pepper and, um, and butter into these potatoes. And afterwards I was eating them and I was like, this is really hitting the glutamate uh, or the umami aspect of reward. So it's healthy food in some sense, but from a weight loss perspective, maybe much less effective than eating those potatoes without those added fats and without that added, uh, you know, the, the duck broth was extremely concentrated umami flavor.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's what you want to do. Like that, That's what your brain intuitively pushes you to do. When you're eating a plain boiled potato, your brain says, what can I put on this to make it taste better, right? Yeah. That is your motivational drive to increase the reward value of your food. And that is a major driver, that reward or the seductiveness of food is a major driver of our eating behavior. And um, there are a few different ways to demonstrate that um, but a few that I like to do is um, break down foods. So, the, the reward value of a food is very closely related to specific physical and chemical properties of that food. So, basically, um, the reward value of a food is your brain's intuitive best guess as to how valuable that food is to you based on your species' evolutionary history. And so there are specific things that the brain is looking for in food that it uses to judge how valuable that food is, how intuitively valuable that food is to you and it sets your motivation accordingly. And so foods that are very concentrated in carbohydrate and fat and protein and salt and glutamate, which is that umami flavor that was in your potatoes and and duck, um, those things, um, th- there are specific receptors in your digestive tract, including your mouth, but mostly in your small intestine, your upper small intestine, that detect the concentration of those things and cause dopamine to spike in your brain in proportion to their concentration. And so you have this, this um, system that senses nutrients um, and causes dopamine which is a motivation and learning chemical to spike in your brain basically in proportion to how valuable that presumably how valuable those nutrients would have been to our ancestors so your brain doesn't spike like you, your dopamine doesn't spike like crazy when you're eating plain celery and kale or plain boiled potatoes but when you're eating a mixture of highly concentrated rewarding nutrients like you have you have your potato but now you're going to put Butter on it, which is highly concentrated fat, and now you're going to put some salt on it, which is, you know, literally pure a purified reward factor. Um, All those things together then start to really get your dopamine going, and um, yeah. So essentially, so you have this this palette of rewarding factors. Some of them you can subtract from your diet, and some of them you can't. You can't subtract protein from your diet, right? I mean, that's just not compatible with health but you can subtract carbohydrate or fat from your diet. And when you do that, when you systematically limit carbohydrate and fat, you're limiting the reward value of your diet, and you're limiting the, um, that intrinsic motivational drive in your brain to eat more food. And so I think this is at least part of the explanation for why you see spontaneous calorie intake decline on low carbohydrate or low fat diets. You're basically giving the brain a palette of foods that they could even be fairly satisfying foods, maybe even tasty foods, but you're not giving your brain one of these very fundamental reward elements that it wants to get out of its optimal diet.
0: So, technical difficulty. We switched spots so you guys can see Stefan's beautiful face a little bit more easily. Um, So what I was saying is, Okay, cool, so, so the reward hypothesis allows you to understand why these two competing ideas can actually both have positive results. But besides that, does it give you some leverage to, to actually maybe create a better effect or help recognize how either of those things can go wrong? Because you know, myself, in the movement industry teaching people, uh, constantly have people who wanna talk to me about food and wanna berate me about how they only eat sprouted oats. That they, you know, spread for 16 hours or something like that, and then the vegans are like, ah, it's got to be like this. And Kaleon's like, well, you're really fit and you're really fit, and you have totally different theories. So, congratulations. Maybe it's genetic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my point is, okay, cool. Well, now you understand something that helps both people. But then also, as soon as I see people who are vegan who are who are who are suffering health-wise, who I see them you know, not achieving the results of building for. And the same thing with paleo, paleo people. It's like, uh, there are, a lot of people do well, obviously, but then there are people who, 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 who are not seeing the body composition changes that they want. Or like myself, I was kind of very low, uh, strict low carbohydrate, and I ended up uh, becoming very physically exhausted and fatigued and unable to sustain the type of training that I want. So, okay, that's a lot of uh, things to unpack but I wanted to to, to think how, do, how does this perspective help you set yourself up to make better decisions as opposed to adopting the low carb or the low fat perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's compatible with any perspective. These are ideas that you could apply in a low carbohydrate setting, a vegan setting, a paleo setting, any of those. Um, and I would say, as a matter of fact, I would say that all of those um, all of those diets are already applying elements of this idea. And that's probably part of the reason that they tend to promote weight loss. Um, But they're just not doing it explicitly. And so I think it all depends on your goal because, you know, not everyone has a weight management goal. And especially athletes may or may not have a weight management goal. Um, But I think that if you do have a weight management goal, which typically people want to lose fat, um, then reducing the reward value of your diet can provide some benefit. And I think that... And I mean, basically, you know, the big concept, I think, that all this revolves around is basically ease of fat loss. Because if you... I mean, you can lose fat just by restricting calories. If you just bean count your calories and you know how many calories you need or you just restrict until you start losing weight you can lose weight. The problem is that it's not sustainable for most people so most people simply are incapable of struggling with themselves over the long term to, um, to lose weight by simple portion control. And so The question is, how do you achieve that most easily? And I think that eating a low-reward diet is one tool in the toolbox. And part of the reason, and and it depends on how attached you are to reward too. You know, one of the things I've learned is that some people are so attached to the way they eat, they're, they're essentially completely dependent on having their palates entertained three times a day to such an extent that they almost are incapable of, not doing that and that, that's been actually a really amazing revelation for me to, to see that because I mean the way I eat is it's not like it, it's a lot more interesting or I, I would say a lot more appealing than like a hunter-gatherer diet if you really look at what actual hunter-gatherers eat it's like you're just eating like plain meat and plain tubers and berries off a bush and drinking straight honey and you know,
0: doing lots of ash and sand in there. Yeah, you mix in ash and sand.
1: Yeah, and like there's no salt. Um, for, for most groups, there's little or no salt. Uh, there's limited or no spices and herbs. I mean, the way I eat would be like extravagant to a hunter-gatherer, but you know, I'll I'll have a plate of food with a plain potato on it, and I don't put butter or salt or anything on the potato, and To me, that's fine, but to some people, that's like abhorrent. It's like unbelievably difficult to just eat a potato without that's not like smeared with all kinds of stuff. And um, so, anyway, the the point I'm trying to get around to is, I mean, I think that each person has to find their point of greatest ease with weight maintenance. And I think that for a lot of people, um, despite what I just said, I think for a lot of people, there is uh, an unrealized potential there with restricting reward the point is that the point i'm trying to get at is that it's all about finding your point of greatest ease for weight maintenance and um despite what i just said that a lot of people have difficulty implementing a low reward diet i think once they're able to get over that speed bump and get more accustomed to a lower reward diet which for most people is possible um they will find that it will make weight maintenance easier. And essentially the reason is that you are not going to have non-conscious brain systems that are constantly pushing you to eat more calories and you're not going to have to fight those systems all the time. So this is, the, this is a, a really important tension that my book focuses on between the conscious rational mind and the um, impulsive non-conscious uh irrational circuits that are the ones that control or at least that strongly influence much of our eating behavior so we have circuits that generate hunger we have circuits that generate cravings we have circuits that make us want to grab things that are in front of us and stuff it in our mouths we have circuits that like free food and all of this stuff is pushing us to eat more Um, so some of the most important of those circuits Uh, their activity is basically dampened by low-reward food. So their ability to push you to eat more is dampened by eating very, very simple food, or just simpler food in general. Um, And one of those is the system that we were talking about, the reward system that pushes you to eat food that um, has these specific chemical properties that the brain finds very appealing, and um, so essentially if you're eating simple food you're not going to be driven to the same degree you're not going to experience the same uh, craving to eat more calories than you need and the second thing is that low reward diets actually appear to impact the way the body regulates your body fat so your body fatness is actually actively regulated and that ties into your appetite and Um, when you're surrounded by food that is very very appealing to the brain very very rewarding very very seductive the brain actually appears to increase the set point around which it regulates your body fat in that scenario and if you lower reward value it seems to lower the set point around which your brain regulates body fatness and the implication of that is that this struggle that you have when you're losing weight of i'm feeling hungry i'm feeling really tempted all of those things are dampened because those motivational systems are kind of curtailed by that lower reward diet
0: yeah i I remember when you first started talking about this because i think when when uh when we met you were more in the paleo low carb camp and and that and i can see why it's a little bit harder sell because you know the the low carbers are like you can have all the delicious steak and bacon that you want as long as you don't eat the carb. Or you know on the flip side the low fats like as long as you stay away from saturated fats then you can have cookies you can have lots of sweet things. Um, so choosing to eat plain potatoes is is a weird it's a, it's a weird place to go but. But having been myself through periods of cutting weight and, and and having struggled with the the psychological aspect of how strong your motivational systems will try to manipulate you into eating something, and then like I cut my I cut weight so hard at one point I was eating seventeen hundred calories a day and I was fasting for sixteen hours a day and i started uh, experiencing uh, some starvation symptoms of uh, extreme lethargy and uh, fatigue and feeling cold all the time and you know that's no good that's that's a bad thing you don't want to be in that situation especially if you're an athlete so one of the things that was really amazing to me that you tell the story of uh, the the liquid diet experiment where people are drinking from a straw can you explain to the audience what happens when you feed somebody an extremely low-reward diet. Yeah,
1: so... um, Yeah, so just to back up a little bit, the... um, Essentially, the uh, brain, since it regulates body fatness, when your body fatness starts to drop, it activates what really is literally a starvation response. Um, And the strength of that starvation response is determined by the degree to which your brain thinks your body is starving. So essentially it's listening to signals of energy status coming from your body, especially the hormone leptin, which represents your body fatness, and if that starts to drop, you start to get these compensatory responses which you described quite well. Basically the brain tries to find ways to get more energy coming into the body and less energy leaving the body and to build up its fat stores and so um, the uh, in the 1960s there um, was a group of researchers who kind of stumbled upon this pretty extraordinary discovery and I don't think they were trying to they weren't really trying to study body fatness or weight loss but um, what they did is they had this setup where they had Um, a bland liquid diet that was available to um, subjects in a very controlled hospital setting. So this group of investigators um, they really weren't trying to study body weight or obesity at all. Um, What they were trying to do is figure out a way to really accurately measure food intake calorie intake I should say and that turns out to be a really difficult thing to do um, so they decided to take all of the variables out of the equation and just basically give people access to a straw that with a button on it, and every time they pressed the button, 7.4 milliliters of this bland liquid diet came out and um, they could just press it as many times as they wanted to until they felt full. And so, they, these people were in a hospital setting where they had access to no other food and this was the only um, food they had access to. So basically their entire calorie intake was coming from this bland liquid diet and they were determining how many calories they ate by the number of pushes on this button that they were hitting. And they were not told to you know, restrict or anything like that. They were just told to eat as much as they needed to feel comfortably full and so they had a... um, they started with lean subjects and those people essentially maintained their calorie intake at a normal level for weight maintenance. So those people ate a totally normal number of calories and they didn't gain or lose any weight in this bland liquid diet setting. Then they tried the same thing with people with obesity and it was, the, the result was remarkable. Essentially the people with obesity consumed very few calories per day on this blind liquid diet. They're eating between like 150 and 300 calories a day and they began to lose weight rapidly. And these people were, the, the key thing to note about this is that they were told to eat as much as they needed to feel full and they were doing that. They were reporting feeling full eating very few calories. And essentially, as long as they remained on this bland liquid diet, um, unrestricted, again, calories were not restricted, they lost weight rapidly. And one of the subjects started at 400 pounds and over the course of about a year lost uh, half of his body weight. And all of this time he was reporting not feeling any hunger. And this is very consistent with animal research suggesting that The type of diet that the animal eats has a very profound impact on how that animal regulates its body fatness. So it's not just a passive process where you're like, hey, this doesn't taste as good, I don't want to eat as much of it. It actually affects the circuits in your brain that determine how much body fat your brain wants to carry or your brain defends against changes. so I, w- I wanted
0: to, to elucidate that just a little bit more because I think it's a really key point that that generally we have a body fat set point that our body will defend through motivational changes. So if you overfeed lean people, what tends to happen?
1: Yeah, so overfeeding lean people, um, it depends on the person what exactly happened what exactly happens at least in the short term Um, some people will literally incinerate almost every last excess calorie you can you can feed people in a very tightly controlled setting where there's no other food going on the excess calorie amount is exactly the same for everyone some people will just incinerate almost all of it almost all the excess and not gain any fat some people will pack every single excess calorie directly into their body fat, um, and then there's everything in between. However, what you tend to see is that after you stop the overfeeding, most of those lean people will lose the excess, the ones that had gained fat will lose the excess fat back down to where they started. So there is a system that, at least in some people, defends against fat gain, Um, although it's, it's more effective in some people than in others and the mechanisms by which it does that, um, there are several mechanisms and not all of those operate to the same degree in every individual. So then when you,
0: when you underfeed people without respect to, to food reward, basically the converse happens. You you get people who are highly motivated. Like you talk a little bit about, I think it was the Minnesota starvation study.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the, the response of the brain, I mean, I don't think anyone listening will be surprised to know that the response of the brain to weight loss is a lot more vigorous and consistent than it is to weight gain. And I mean, I think that's consistent with the fact that more than half of, Amer- of Americans will be obese at some point in life. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult for that person with obesity to become lean once again. So the the lower limit is defended much more consistently um, and vigorously than the upper limit for most people. Um, Yeah, so the Minnesota starvation study is a really interesting, um, really interesting example of that. Um, It was conducted by Ancel Keys, the famous nutrition researcher, famous of the Seven Countries Study, and it was done in conscientious objectors uh, around World War II. These people were, um, didn't want to go fight, didn't want to go kill people or be killed. And so the government said, all right, fine. Well, um, you can get out of fighting in the war if you agree to participate in this really challenging experiment basically what we're going to do is we're going to underfeed you by something like 30% of your normal calorie intake for, I, I don't remember whether it was six months or a year, something in that range. And these people lost a lot of weight. They lost like a quarter of their body weight. So, I mean, you see photos of them, and they looked like normal lean people in the beginning, and then by the end, they're just like, you know, you can see all their ribs, their skeletal. It's... it's um they're quite weight reduced. And he took a number of very detailed measurements of these people during the course of this process. Some of those measurements were physiological, you know, um, and body composition, and then some of them were just observing behavior and psychological. And what he noted is that um, these people, their mental lives, their internal, Psychological lives began to revolve around food. So, in the beginning, uh, you know, they just had normal everyday thought process like all of us, but by the end of it, they were collecting cooking utensils, they were thinking about recipes all day, uh, they were just daydreaming about food and dreaming at night about food. Their entire mental existence kind of started revolving around food. And they actually, it was so pronounced um, that they actually named it semi-starvation neurosis, uh, this type of obsession that developed in these people. So these systems that regulate body fatness and regulate our motivation, they're very powerful and they reach into a number of different brain systems and can kind of hijack a number of different brain systems in order to try to get you to eat food. And some of those systems are, you know, high-level conscious systems that are the ones that are determining what we think about in our daily lives. Um, And this comes back to the way this um, lipostat, as I call it, this fat-regulating system works. Basically, it's a negative feedback homeostatic system which is similar to what's in your thermostat. So what what all those words mean is that um, in your thermostat you have a thermometer that measures the ambient temperature in your house and and there's a set value in that thermostat that you program and when the temperature deviates from that it kicks in corrective response to maintain stability or homeostasis of the temperature of your home. So if the temperature starts to drop, the thermometer detects that, it kicks in a heating response. So it turns out that there are many things in the body that are regulated homeostatically like that because they have to maintain a stable range or else you get yourself in trouble. Things like um, blood pH, uh, blood CO2, blood pressure, Body temperature is a great example. That's a very tightly regulated variable. And I think it's a really great illustration of this because your brain literally works like a thermostat in how it regulates body temperature, except that the responses it uses are much more complex than your thermostat. So the brain has literally thermometers it's listening to in your core and on your skin that allow it to detect your current core temperature as well as future threats to your core temperature. And when temperature, and, and it has its set point, right? Its, its set point of 98.6 plus or minus a degree or so, that's the thing it's trying to defend. And that's programmed into the brain. And if your temperature starts to decline a little bit relative to that set point, it kicks in a variety of behavioral and physiological responses to maintain that temperature. So on the physiological side, your blood vessels in your skin um, constrict. Um, you may start shivering. You may, it may activate your brown fat to generate heat. And then on the behavioral side, your brain makes you really want to put on a sweater or turn up the heat or have some hot cocoa or adopt postures that are heat conserving like this. Um, And then conversely, there are a whole suite of physiological and behavioral responses when the heat, when your body heat starts to increase too high. Um, And these responses are so effective that they can maintain our body temperature to within about a degree Fahrenheit when the outside temperature may be varying by 70 or more degrees. So it's incredibly effective. And as it turns out, as I said, many things are regulated like this and one of them is body fatness. And body fatness is is of course not defended as vigorously or as accurately as, as body temperature, but it's the same in the sense that it acts via a suite of behavioral and physiological responses that attempt to defend a set value that's in the brain. And so if you start to lose weight, like they did in the Minnesota starvation experiments, um, your brain has a sensor and that is leptin, which is a hormone that's in the circulation in proportion to how much fat you have. So your brain measures the leptin just like your thermostat measures temperature. And then if the leptin drops below the value that the brain wants, that the brain's looking for, and this is all non-conscious of course, then it starts to kick in a series of behavioral and physiological responses and those are aimed at getting more energy into the body and reducing the amount of energy that's leaving the body and so on the behavioral side you're going to have impulses and feelings that drive you to eat more food and drive you to be more interested in calorie dense foods so you're going to feel more hunger you're going to feel more cravings. It's going to be harder to walk by the ice cream aisle in the, in the grocery store. Um, and then on the physiological side, your calorie expenditure is going to decline. So your, your metabolic rate, your basal metabolic rate will go down a little bit. The calories that your body expends in physical activity will go down. Um, and all of that together, the appetite's the main thing the, I should say, the food intake piece is the main place where your body regulates. So the changes in calorie expenditure are a much smaller lever than changes in calorie intake because they can, calorie intake can vary much, much more than your body's ability to restrict its own calorie expenditure. So all of that together basically... Um, explains why weight loss is so difficult. Because when your weight goes down, your brain kicks in all these systems, all these systems that begin in non-conscious regions, but start to impinge on our conscious behaviors and experiences um, as they interact with other brain systems. And those things are literally fighting our fat loss effort.
0: So the, the old idea that you know, we all just need to eat less and move more. It's, it's not really answering the central problem that we face.
1: Exactly. So it is correct in the narrow sense. I mean, there's no doubt that your calorie balance, that is the number of calories you eat versus the number you expend, is the, I mean, that's literally, the, the calorie value of food is literally the only food property that we know of that impacts body fatness it's the only property that's been convincingly shown to impact body fatness and so you know there's all kinds of nonsense on the internet about how calories don't matter and yada yada it does it's incredibly important it's it's central but it's not the end of the story so um even though eat less move more does work if you can implement it and maintain it it's very difficult to implement and maintain. It's surprisingly difficult because of these regulatory systems that oppose it. And so this comes back to the ease concept. It's not that it's wrong, it's just not, for most people, it's difficult enough that it's not a sustainable path.
0: Yeah, the central idea that that I get out of this is like, you you can eat less or you can move more by a exercise of will. But then you're always having to exercise that will, and that seems to be unsustainable for most people over a prolonged period of time. But if you can manipulate the 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 the, the, the body fat set point by changing the reward value of your foods over time and uh, some of the habits around you know the, the things that you're exposed to, you can actually set yourself to a lower uh, body fat at that point so that you you don't have to consciously exert control and I think that's a, it may not strike people as really exciting to to decide to to take on a diet that involves eating multiple meals of plain potatoes or mm-hmm. rice or or meat that's boiled instead of instead of fried and doesn't <laughs> have salt and pepper added to it, right? Like all these things are they sound kind of miserable. <laughs> um but 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 it's probably less miserable to eat a meal that's a little bit less rewarding a couple times a day or three times a day than to be hungry
1: all the time yeah that's right and 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 really it comes back down to the ease thing like if the easiest thing for you is just to like willpower your way through calorie restriction then by all means do it. But I I think that that's just not true for most people. And we actually have a lot of randomized controlled trials that show that the simple um, portion control method does not work for most people. It does not lead to durable fat loss. I think there is a subset of people who just have like iron wills and who can make it work. But I think that's a very small minority of people. yeah, and so I mean the bigger picture here, there's there's the the lipostat, the energy regulating system that we're talking about, but there's an even bigger principle over top of that, and that is the simply the dichotomy between these um non conscious uh these non conscious impulsive systems and the conscious uh rational systems that are butting heads in many ways in our lives and um essentially you know to 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 make the concept a little bit more exciting um nobody wants to overeat right um yet most of us do so there's something that is causing us to engage in behaviors that we do not consciously or rationally want to engage in and that harm us profoundly in terms of you know, our health goals, in terms of our athletic goals, in terms of our appearance goals. And so, essentially the reason is that there are these non-conscious circuits that are driving us to eat too much because of how we evolved. And so the higher level principle that I'm getting at here is that um, giving those circuits... the, the circuits are very reactive to the cues in your environment that you're giving it via your external environment, as w- as well as signals that are coming from the environment inside your body, and if you can provide those systems with the right signals, then you can essentially, instead of fighting them all the time, you can essentially recruit them to help you, um, to help you control your calorie intake in an easier, more sustainable, and natural way. And one way to do that is by the reward thing, but I wanna emphasize that there are multiple tools you can deploy to do that, and I talk about multiple ways in my book. So, you know, if you find that the reward idea is not very appealing to you, there are other tools you can use that fall under that broader umbrella um, that could still be effective.
0: Can you talk about some of those other tools?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the most straightforward ones is giving the satiety system the right cues. So there, we, we talked about the lipostat or the energy homeostasis system that regulates body fatness, but there's another system. So that's, that's the part of your brain that regulates your long-term energy status, yeah. which is represented by your fat stores. But there's a part of your brain in the brainstem that regulates your short-term energy status, and that is regulated by your meal-to-meal food intake. And so basically how this works is when you eat a meal, all that food goes into your digestive tract and there are sensors, primarily in your upper small intestine, that signal what you ate back up to your brain. And they tell your brain about many different things that's in that food, but some of the most important ones for satiety are the volume of the food, the volume of what you ate, so that's coming from your stomach, stretch receptors in your stomach, um, the carbohydrate content, the fat content, and the protein content. And essentially the brain, and, and based on all of that information, your brainstem generates a satiety response. So it starts to make you feel full, and, and what, what is satiety? It's, it's a motivational state, or rather a lack of motivational state to eat, um, and, it's a, and it's a sensation and so essentially when your brainstem decides that you've eaten enough it sends out signals to motivational systems in your brain and to other places that shut down your eating behavior shut down your motivation to continue consuming food and um so what are the principles that guide that process what Causes your brainstem to say, "Hey, you've eaten enough." Well, um, it turns out that those principles—I'll get into those in a second—but it turns out that they don't correspond very closely to the number of calories that you ate. So the the um, brainstem is not really very accurate at matching satiety to the number of calories that you ate. Certain types of foods will cause more satiety per calorie than others. And it turns out that um, there are certain very simple food properties that predict how satiating it will be per calorie. And so one of the most important is the calorie density. So that just means how many calories are there in this food per unit weight. So like a piece of chocolate has a very high calorie density Whereas a piece of celery has a very low calorie density. Those are kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so the lower the calorie density, the more satiety per calorie you experience. And that's simply because the same number of calories will fill your stomach up more, activate those stretch receptors more, and that's a piece of the satiety puzzle in your brain. Um, Also, higher protein creates more satiety per calorie. Um, Lower palatability or pleasure of eating, basically, creates more satiety per calorie. And um, higher fiber creates more satiety per calorie.
0: It seems to me that in a lot of ways, lower satiety maps to lower reward in the long run. So what does having the satiety piece give you as a tool that you don't get from just the reward piece?
1: well i think that you can create more satiety basically you can exact i mean you can accentuate that effect so you're basically approaching satiety trying to um increase the satiety response by two different using two different tools that are both very powerful and um if you put those together you're going to get a larger response than if you use either one individually but one thing I really want to emphasize about this satiety concept that I'm talking about is that it corresponds really well to our intuitive ideas about what foods are fattening and what foods are not. So if you look at foods that have properties that are very low satiety per calorie so high calorie density, um, sometimes low protein not always, low fiber because they're refined, Um, high palatability, what you're going to find is that that basically describes most junk foods, describes all junk foods. So pizza, cake, chocolate, cookies, all of those things fit perfectly into that into that rubric. Um, Now if you take the converse of that you get essentially unrefined uh, whole foods more similar to what our ancestors used to eat. You get fresh fruits, fresh meats, eggs, oatmeal, um, very simple, unrefined foods that have a high water content, high protein, sometimes not always, often high fiber, um, and just very simple foods like what our ancestors used to eat. Those tend to have properties that are higher satiety. So I think this um, concept really kind of gives... A an empirical basis uh, it gives a I should say a mechanistic basis really to some of our intuitions about food and what's fattening and what's not. So I wanted to to start bridging
0: off into some of the how how this this basic understanding of the brain helps us think about our life in the modern world in a more general sense. Um, before we get there, I wanted to go back to the reward factors, and and there's something you just said about our brain isn't very good at actually cal- calculating calorie density. I think it's, it, it wraps into a, a big issue, which is our brains evolved for very specific purposes. They evolved to to solve problems in very specific environments, and they and they're they're not perfectly efficient or objective, right? They you 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 don't. Uh, in the book, you talk about the fact that the only micronutrient that we can detect by flavor is salt, because for some reason we needed enough salt in our diet that it was useful for us to seek that, and that many other animals don't have receptors for salt. But we don't have receptors for say vitamin A or for for uh, magnesium, for calcium, for all these other things that 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 we may be missing in our diet today, because it wasn't worth it for evolution to build that capacity in. It's expensive to build things into a human being. So you, you want very simple heuristics that allow you to get the benefit of it. And then that's big, that's conditioned on the evolutionary environment. So can you uh, go over the, the the primary satiety factors again, and then what those might have signaled as far as the nourishments that were available, the, the, the broader uh, nutrition that was available in the ancestral environment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first of all, I just wanted to say that, uh, I, I don't know if all animals have it, but I think most animals do sense salt and a lot of them are motivated by it, but not necessarily all of them. Um, but the, yeah, so for, um, protein, uh, that's a big satiety factor per unit calorie. That's the most satiating macronutrient. And signaled by umami? Well, uh, not primarily. It is... So um, it depends on whether you're looking at it from a reward perspective or from a satiety perspective because those are actually different, separate yeah. pathways, which is kind of strange yeah, but, yeah, but true. Um, but what, I, what I mean by that is separate, like, all the way down to the gut. Um, even though they're detecting some of the same things, they d- it doesn't seem to be carried by the same I- nerve impulses. It's really surprising. Um, but um, if you're looking at it from a satiety perspective, I believe it's just amino acids in general. and There may be specific amino acids, I don't remember, but it's not specifically tied to glutamate. Although glutamate does... Sp- glutamate specifically does have a satiety effect. Um, and... But if you're if you're talking about reward, protein and glutamate, so amino acids in general and glutamate seem to have kind of separate effects. Um, but I, I wanted to take things just a little step back to answer your question. I think that it's better to look at it from a reward perspective than a satiety perspective, because reward is really that's where you're talking about what the brain wants. Mm-hmm. And so if we're talking if we're thinking about why evolution if we're if we're thinking about evolutionary drive for certain types of nutrients i think looking at it from a reward perspective is more informative and so um for protein i think it's pretty obvious you know our tissues um are made of protein most of them and it performs a lot of essential functions in the body Um, Carbohydrate and fat are principal sources of calories. Calories are very, very important, obviously. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about um, why it's important in a natural setting and talking and illustrating empirical, going over empirical evidence that natural selection really has selected for a calorie-seeking brain specifically. Now, aside from their calorie value, I think fat and carbohydrate have some intrinsic value because carbohydrate um, is used for a variety of things in the body. And if you're not eating it, your body is going to make it. So no matter, you know, if you eat zero carbohydrate in your diet, your body is going to maintain a level of fasting glucose that's not that different than if you're eating tons of carbohydrate it might be somewhat different but it's not radically different so glucose is something your body needs and if you don't eat it from your diet it's going to make it so that's something the body wants to obtain it's more costly it's more difficult to make it than to just ingest it Um, furthermore carbohydrate supports high-intensity physical activity and that is probably would have been really important in an ancestral context If you're eating a very low carbohydrate diet, it's pretty clear from the research at this point that that will impair your physical performance. And at least anecdotally, some people feel that it impairs their recovery. Um, Fat is the most calorie dense substance on the planet by a long shot. The only thing that comes close is is alcohol. And um, so I think that explains why our brains really really want it but it also carries some essential nutrients such as uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids um, that are you know essential to health Um, so then there is actually a bit of a distinction that the brain makes between sugars and starches. And it, we seem to have this special affinity for sugar. Yeah. Um, and you can't really taste starch in your mouth, but you can taste sugar. There are specific receptors for sugar, for free sugars. And my guess is that that's simply because sugar evolutionarily is associated with fruit or honey, both of which are very safe calorie sources. I mean, fruit literally evolved to feed animals. That's its purpose. And so, it doesn't mean every fruit is good for you, but I mean, if you find the right fruit that evolved to feed you, it's probably not gonna hurt you. Mm -hmm. It literally evolved to feed you. Um, And then um, honey, of course, you're stealing this amazing resource that bees painstakingly hoard, um, and and it doesn't contain any, any toxins. And then uh, glutamate is, is kind of an interesting one because it is not only an amino acid, a constituent of protein, but it's specifically something that occurs in cooked meats. And so I would, I don't know if this is literally true, but I would speculate that we have a particular affinity for glutamate because um, cooked meats have lower parasite burdens, you get rid of all the parasites, and you can extract more calories and protein from cooked meat than you can from raw meat.
0: So is it, isn't it true also that the chimpanzees if given a chance would prefer to eat cooked meat over raw meat?
1: I'm not sure. Um, I think I've I think I may have read some study to that effect. I'm not I'm not well versed on that, but the brain is very good. I mean basically your dopamine system responds in part to the amount of protein in your food. And if you're able to extract more protein and faster, then you probably get more of a dopamine spike. So it would make sense that chimps would respond to that just in the same way that they would respond to like a candy bar, yeah. you know? So uh,
0: a couple of years ago, we were sitting down uh, to drinks and you said, what the food industry has effectively done has been able to divorce flavor from nutrition. So all these reward pathways that we have, they're now, they can now be hyper-stimulated by things that don't contain the micronutrients that we didn't evolve to seek. So now we can get things that that jack the reward system up and create essentially an addictive response to food, um, but don't deliver the nutrition. So we can actually in some sense end up in a place where we're hypernourished for calories, but actually malnourished for nutrients because we didn't evolve to seek the micronutrients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in, and, and this comes back to your previous question that we evolved heuristics, as you put it, very simple heuristics to get ourselves nourished. And those heuristics are simply going for these calorie-rich substances plus salt. I mean, that's really what our primary food heuristics boil down to in terms of our motivation.
0: Maybe fun chemicals like caffeine and alcohol.
1: and theology. Well, yeah, any, anything that's acting directly on the reward system, that's like a workaround. But, I mean, in an ancestral setting where our ancestors lived, if you're eating fat and protein and, and starch, you're getting the whole package. You're getting the, because there's nothing but unrefined, whole, nutritious foods. There's nothing else available. You don't have the technology to extract the things that spike your dopamine from the things that don't. So as long as you're getting enough calories, you're getting everything you need um, in terms of the micronutrients and the fiber, etc. Yeah, so what technology has essentially allowed us to do is concentrate and extract the active ingredients that spike dopamine in the brain. That's literally... If you look at the march of progress throughout history in terms of food technology, you can trace that cultures throughout history have basically been able to get better and better at concentrating the things that spike dopamine in the brain and mixing those together in ever more appealing ways. And so um, the history of glutamate is a great example. So the first source of free glutamate was probably just cooked meat and we evolved to really really like that flavor and then as time went on we probably developed pots and then we could make bone broth and that has higher levels Um, and then eventually we learned how to make fish sauce in ancient Roman times and in ancient uh, China they were making fish sauce they were making soy sauce and that has very high levels of glutamate and then this process culminated with the discovery of monosodium glutamate in Japan which is literally the crystalline purified form of that reward factor that our brain looks for that spikes dopamine. And now you can just take this pure dopamine powder and just sprinkle it on your food. Same for salt, same for sugar. Those are crystalline reward substances. And it's very analogous to cocaine. I mean, the coca leaf is a leaf that was chewed is chewed by certain um, South American cultures that's a mild stimulant it's like drinking a cup of coffee but if you purify and concentrate the reward factor the thing that spikes your dopamine in it you get cocaine which is a much more addictive substance and then if you further um, chemically alter it such that it crosses your blood-brain barrier faster and that's as crack cocaine then it becomes even more rewarding. And so essentially each processing step makes it more and more effective at spiking your dopamine and gives it a greater and greater addictive potential. And so um, that's exactly what we've done. We have through technology that our ancestors didn't have. They literally did not have the ability to do this or they would have done it. At least I should say the average person didn't have the ability um, to, to engage in this regularly. Um, But now we have the ability to extract pure fats and have them in unlimited abundance. Um, We have monosodium glutamate and everything related to it, like yeast extract and all these things that the food industry adds to our foods um, to avoid saying that they have MSG, even though it's the same thing. Um, We have the purified salt we have purified sugar, we have purified starch, and all of that other stuff that naturally comes along with it in a natural environment the vitamins and the fibers and the polyphenols and all the other things that play supporting roles for our health. Our brains just don't instinctively care about that stuff. They would rather have just the concentrated fat, sugar, starch, and salt and forget about all this other crap. So I think. I think
0: you may have actually discovered what I think is perhaps the central problem of modern life because it, it's not just a problem that's associated with food. The obesity epidemic is part of a broader set of problems that all come down to the fact that we can hijack reward centers in the brain with technology in a way that we never have before. And in doing so, we can create addictive responses in people. So when you when you said that to me, the, the thing that I thought immediately was, okay, if, if, uh, if, if junk food or industrial food is flavor divorced from nutrition, what about pornography? That's just, that's, that's sexual pleasure divorced from the context of a relationship. You don't have to work for it anymore. Right? You don't have to maintain a positive relationship with the partner. A video game like is a way of essentially experiencing what it feels like to be able to be a great parkour athlete, a great martial artist, a great, a hunter without ever a- having to leave your, your house. And um, and then the big one that, that, I, that, that really struck me hard at that time was that social media is a way of, of essentially getting the hit of dopamine that you get from, from the approval of your friends in, in, in a consistent little drip. It's like the, the moment that, that they invented that little like button. It's like we're, we're like little rats in a, uh, a giant operant conditioning experiments, the biggest operant conditioning experiment in history, and we're hitting, and we're reinforcing that. And it's interesting because I'd never heard anyone describe it like that when I put out a video about, two years ago about this, but I've heard more and more intelligent people talk about this idea of the dopamine drip, so social media. And I, the last time you and I were chatting, you were talking about how you're trying to train yourself away from, from Twitter. So I think that this, the fact that we, that we have this learning hormone, dopamine, that reinforces behaviors that 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 are signals of something from the ancestral environment that can now be hijacked by a product I and mean, maybe that's the best way to make a product right now the best way to make a product is to make something that hijacks a reward center that you can deliver as cheaply as possible and gain as much control of people's behavior so if that's if, if we can do that in all these different pathways and and there's an obvious incentive structure to do that then what we do will be less and less decided by us and more and more a way of creating capital for some some broader system. So so I'm not sure the audience will necessarily completely understand the dopamine system and why this is so powerful and what this indicates about this broader picture, but that's what I really wanted to dig into with you. So can you go in in greater depth into what dopamine is, how it interacts with the brain, and how how the motivational systems and the selection of behavior is driven by these specific neural processes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you know, food is a great example that we and we can generalize from there. But um, essentially, your brain has a series of hardwired goals, things that you know natural selection has wired into your brain as important goals that you should try to achieve in your life. Things like eating food, having sex, staying, you know, warm, uh, avoiding certain types of dangers, you know, not liking spiders and snakes, stuff like that. Um, The, so, and then uh, essentially when you engage in a behavior, the degree to which it accomplishes one of those goals will determine how much dopamine gets released, basically, at least initially. So if you're eating a food and it has tons of sugar, tons of fat, in a very concentrated form, your brain gets wind of it and you're going to get a bunch of dopamine. And essentially, that does two things. Uh, One of them is it sets your motivational state. So when that dopamine is spiking, you're going to want to keep engaging in the behavior that you're engaging in. So eating a piece of pizza or whatever. The second thing that it does and arguably more important is it causes, it sets your future motivation for that thing. And so the way that works is that whatever you're doing when the dopamine hits, it, your brain pays very close attention to everything that's happening at that moment and it takes in all the sensory cues that are associated with that situation. So it remembers the appearance of the slice of pizza, what the pepperonis look like, what the box looks like, uh, where you were, what it tastes like, what the texture is, who you're with, all of those things it remembers by virtue of that dopamine release, and those things become motivational triggers in the future. So the next time you encounter and so dopamine it actually climbs up the causal ladder to the furthest cue that predicts that reward so the next time um, you smell the pizza the dopamine starts to spike and that triggers your motivation to engage in in eating that pizza that's basically the brain saying this is a situation in which you can achieve an important goal creates an intrinsic motivation for you to do that Um, and then you know at first maybe it's the smell that motivates you and then eventually when, you know maybe just driving by the sign of the pizza store or seeing that logo on TV. The most distal cue that's an accurate predictor of pizza in your belly is what's gonna spike your dopamine the most. And, um, and that dopamine essentially reinforces pathways of motivation and behavior in your brain and it sets, so, and, and what that does Um, reinforcing those pathways essentially sets your behavioral intensity and your behavioral priorities. And so this is essentially why people who are addicted to cocaine or crack or whatever, meth, their lives can be destroyed essentially because dopamine mediated reinforcement of drug seeking and drug use is so powerful that they will prioritize behaviors related to that over every single other thing in their lives. Their brain has set its priorities because that dopamine is saying this is the most important goal you can achieve right now, and so that may be more important than social relationships. It may be more important than holding down a job. May be more important than than eating, than having a home, whatever it is. Having teeth. Having teeth. <laughs> um, so, so that's what it does. It prioritizes prioritizes your behaviors and, um, and your. Sets your level of behavioral intensity or, or motivation, is, is a, another way to say that. And um, so, and as I said, there are certain hardwired goals that dopamine responds to, and these specific food properties are a very powerful one. Obviously, sex is another very powerful one, um, and social interaction is another very powerful one, like s- social accolades, for example and um some people have argued and i think convincingly that information acquisition is another one and so there's this book called the distracted mind that i found really interesting that i brought up with you a couple times um that argues that you can apply very similar principles to understanding human information seeking that you can apply to human food seeking So basically, these principles of foraging for food in a natural environment, the the mathematical principles that I talk about a little bit in my book that explain what humans try to, you know, forage for and what they don't, not just humans, but many animals, those can be applied to information foraging. So one of the key things that makes humans unique is that we live or die by information. You know in an ancestral environment that's really one of the key things that drives our success and our survival is our ability to acquire and retain information that's probably a big reason why we have such long lifespans is because information um you know your ability to accumulate information over a lifespan makes you a really valuable person to your descendants and um so anyway so we have this intrinsic motivation to acquire information and social media, and and there are many types of information. Some of it's just factual, some of it's social information about what people are doing in your social environment. And um, social media, I think for me, Twitter, I'm I'm immune to Facebook fortunately, but Twitter um, really pushes my buttons. And it's that you're getting those little dopamine hits with these little information nuggets. And one of the things that the brain seeks the most, they argue in this book, is novel, novel information. And so, you know, if you check the news once and then you check it five minutes later, it's the same. So that's not a novel stimulus. But with Twitter, there's this cascading series of novel information nuggets that you can read, you can click through on, um, and it has that social reinforcement aspect. It's like... Did did they like my tweet? Did you know? Did I like their tweet? Um, did they retweet it? There's like a social ladder, it's yeah. social climbing aspect. It's interesting because I
0: use Twitter very passively and I use Facebook very actively. So I, I can see that there's two very different kind of reward systems that are triggered there. Because when I post a, a new video on Facebook, sometimes you know some of our videos have over hundred thousand views, and you know four hundred likes are you know. 400 shares on some of the videos. So we post a video, and 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 I just get this this feed of of, of information saying, "We love you. You're awesome, right?" And it's incredibly reinforcing. And I, and for weeks after I put out something really successful, I will find myself refreshing my feed subconsciously all the time, just just because I've been so reinforced by what I did. You know, it's, it was a huge hit of dopamine, and it reinforced all the behavior around that. Um, on the flip side, I don't tend to post a lot on Twitter. Mostly it, you know, it just feeds my Instagram to Twitter. Um, but what I do with Twitter is, well actually I, I pretty much isolated myself from Facebook to some degree for various reasons. I, I, took, uh, I killed my, my newsfeed, so I was not looking at it. But then I started using Twitter. And Twitter is the same thing for me, where it's like, it's just interesting information over and over again. One of the things that, that you say in the book that's really interesting to me, though, is that that dopamine is not in, its, in itself inherently pleasurable, necessarily. That it's associated with, with hormones that cause pleasure. But this is something that I find interesting about Twitter. I'll be like, I'll be strolling through Twitter, and I can feel it's reinforcing to get these little bites of information, but I actually don't feel like it increases my happiness or well-being. And this, it's the same thing with social oh, with social media, right? It's like it's a very cheap delivery system of something maybe very concentrated, It's very reinforcing of the behavior, but it doesn't have the same full depth emotional experience that something like you know, you know, the, the ultimate experience for me is like I climbed through a waterfall with fifteen of my friends, and they were all deeply scared, and we were cold, and it was amazing. And then we went and sat down and had an amazing meal and then we we're in the sauna together. Like that's that's rewarding on a much broader set of levels and it, it gives me some sense of meaning in my life. Whereas the addictive thing of going, you know, what are people saying about this new issue, this new issue, this new issue? It actually, I, I think it makes me depressed actually. And mm. I think that the information is coming up more and more that Social media use is certainly highly correlated with depression and it's not clear what the causality is, but there's a bunch of new studies that are showing that basically the more you use social media, the more likely you are to be depressed.
1: They talk about that in the distracted mind as well, yeah. I think it's really interesting, I mean I I haven't really noticed a mood link with myself but I do notice that um, Twitter in particular can really cut into my productivity and um i and you know being so immersed in this understanding the reward system the motivation system um and also having a background in meditation that i've spent many years kind of observing my own mind um i really can very acutely feel this um this pull um that twitter exerts on my mind and my behavior that is not entirely constructive and and you know i I want to acknowledge that these things do have some value. you know Twitter does have value, it um, is very informative, it keeps me up to date, and I do have social interactions that I enjoy on Twitter, so I don't want to just say it's just a bad thing, but I think that You know, we have this marketplace of food and of technology and all these things that's very competitive and basically the things that are the most addictive are the ones that survive in this hyper-competitive marketplace. And I think despite its value, Twitter and Facebook and those things are reinforcing to the point of being destructive. And so, at least in, in many people. And so I've personally started to withdraw from it at least withdraw my active participation. I still use it professionally to post things, but um, it's been really interesting feeling the pull of it subside. Like I would kind of almost compulsively check it throughout the day and whenever I needed a break, I would just automatically go to Twitter and not using it almost at all for a week. Those impulses have really subsided and it feels good. It feels like, I'm regaining control over aspects of my behavior.
0: Yeah, so I've been trying to detrain myself off of using social media and also off of consuming information primarily through the internet. So rather than like reading blogs, I've been trying to read a lot more books. So a couple things that have been interesting in in observing that is um, one, the compulsiveness that comes with it. Also, uh, you know, books are great because you can read a much a much more in-depth argument. Right? You can think a little bit more deeply about things. But the other thing that I'm th- thinking about is that like, your brain actually needs fallow periods. It needs, like, if you are constantly addicted to social media, you have, you never stop receiving input from outside of your own internal system, which makes it harder to listen to your intrinsic systems. I, uh, I've been thinking about, what about nothing? <laughs> Like, not even meditation, but just, like, contemplation. Just sitting down and not having something. But there's something so addictive about that, that information gathering.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, just look at people these days with the smartphones. I know I'm sounding like an old old man. These days with the the smartphones! But, I mean, there's no downtime for the mind. Like, whenever there's a break, and I'm sure many of the people watching this will will uh feel that this describes them but we pull out our smartphones and we fill it up with looking at something and um you know i'm not i'm not a psychologist i'm not a psychology researcher but just my own speculation is that there's value to boredom i mean when i was a kid i was bored all the time i don't think kids are bored these days no i don't
0: think we're bored and i think well there's two things that are really interesting about that one is there's research that shows that boredom is is a source of creativity people people will make up things because they're bored and that's useful the other is this this idea of like where do your what is the where do you come from in some sense or where do your thoughts come from there's a quote in a book uh i think i think it's from uh r scott baker's work uh, the prince of nothing series but it's a uh, fictional philosopher in his world, but he says something along the lines of: "To read is to voluntarily allow yourself to be moved by another soul. Right? Your your thoughts, you're letting your brain be taken over by somebody else's thoughts in a sense. So when we when we re- when we become reliant and dependent on external sources of information constantly, we are we are actually, in some sense, uh, outsourcing the creation of our thoughts to some broader societal entity, which which may which may be positive. And I want to go into why I think there's really some positive things that we have to acknowledge because I don't think we can get rid of it without recognizing what it, where it's useful. But I think that's really potentially dangerous. It's like it's very easy to fall into a stream of information, whether it's you know the alt-right or the social justice warriors, and you can get that little behavior pathway, that little set of thoughts constantly reinforced, and you never have to think about anything outside of the scope of what those people are thinking about. And you can constantly feed yourself that. So uh, here I'm going to drop Jordan Peterson's name. <laughs> Every time we talk, that name comes up, and it always uh, bugs you But <laughs> out. But he talked about the idea that social media isn't an echo chamber. It's actually an amplifier. Right, it's actually building the signal on these things, and so when we, when we jump into that, we're actually participating in, in these amplifications of any sort of streams of thought, and maybe becoming less complete individuals because of that, and less, less self-developed,
1: less self-driven. Could be. I mean, I think another issue that I, that concerns me is we are living in. high dopamine world now and we know that if you induce a high dopamine world in animals by giving them some highly rewarding stimulus like drug access or human junk food for example it changes their brain in ways that are not good and um we are surrounded by Dopamine stimuli to an extraordinary extent compared to our ancestors. It's in food, it's porn, it's media, it's uh, our, you know social media, it's many different things that surround us that have basically been selected because they spike dopamine, as well as drugs. You know, we we think, oh, I don't do drugs, but most people do. They either drink caffeine or alcohol. If, Almost always
0: both. Yeah, and most people smoke. Marijuana. I mean, honestly, I'm, we're in Seattle, Orleans, <laughs> so it's legal here. Uh, I actually don't smoke myself, but but I, you know, I think I could probably count on one hand the number of my friends who have never participate.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, essentially, we're just kind of like saturated with these dopamine spiking stimuli, and I I don't know exactly what effects that has on the brain, but I think there is strong reason to speculate that it might be really not good. And certainly, since dopamine prioritizes your behaviors, it's going to prioritize your behaviors toward those things that spike your dopamine, and the manifestations of that can be pretty negative, like addiction to drugs, addiction to gambling, uh, addiction to porn, you know, there's video games. I think video games are a great example. Actually, that's video games are probably the one thing that I've, one reward stimulus that I've struggled with the most in my life. Yeah, I completely um, banished video games from my life. Not completely, but almost completely. When, um, after college, it just was such a motivational draw on me and such a waste of time that I, said, I can't do this anymore, I don't want to do this, and so I just never put another one on my computer, and that was it.
0: So, I actually, I think, have relatively low response to video games. Like, when all the kids started playing video games when I was young, I was like not that interested in it. But when I was 15 or 16, the first of the Elder Scrolls series came out, and the second of the Elder Scrolls series, and for some reason, that game really triggered whatever was in my brain that was available to triggered. So I'd play the Elder Scrolls, so the last one that I the last one that came out was Skyrim which came out I think 2011 or 12 it came out before my daughter was born and I ended up playing 230 hours of Skyrim and I would play till 3 in the morning wow um, and and so I, I was like oh, I beat the game you should and get some kind of medal for this.
1: that
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was done with it and and I thought to myself what could I have done with those 230 hours and like it was super fun while I was doing it. But what did I gain as a human being? Yeah. When we those 230 hours? Like you had to learn zero. Japanese, man. <laughs> you you did you know, and it's like it's not that 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 things that are just pleasurable aren't worth doing sometimes just for themselves. It's like you need to to blow off steam occasionally. But if the thing that you blow off steam doing is going to automatically blow up, it's like you can you can read a, a trashy novel for thirty minutes and put it down, right? But you pick up Skyrim and it's like six hours go by and you don't know what happened. And that—that's that's a, I think that's a real problem and I think that, you know, I think it's particularly addictive for for young men because of the way the video, Yeah. Video, uh, descended. And we can see that men are falling behind in in, in school, starting, boys are starting falling behind in school, it, you know, basically from the time they enter school. Now the majority of college graduates are female, like, uh, women are out competing men in the workplace now. Uh, like, if you're under 35, I think, uh, women are now out earning men. Um, if they're, you know, you control for them being in the same professional fields. Now, you know, that's great that women are doing well, but it's, it's problematic if men fall too far behind, right? Because, you know, well that's bad for men. It's also bad for women, because women have to meet with men, you know, for the most <laughs> part. Not all of them. But, uh, but that's a, you know, it's a real problem. So, but I wanted to go back to social media for a second because I've been thinking about this a lot because my professional life owes itself to social media. I'm able to travel the world and teach what I teach because it's been spread through social media. I've been thinking about this a lot myself because my professional life, in many ways, is dependent on social media, it's, it's, it's become possible. Like, I devoted many years of my life to parkour, which I only knew about through social media in a sense. And that community developed through social media. And I've been able to travel the world and teach and develop a business because of social media. And, and even going back before that, like I, I grew up pretty isolated and I was interested in very sophisticated, intellectual things at a very young age and that did not um, really work with the peer group that I had available for me in the small town I grew up in. So it was very socially isolated, and I remember the first time I was like really motivated to care about a group of people was a online Tolkien fandom. <laughs> Lord of the Rings fandom. And and so from the time I was like 15 years old, I was always embedded in these online communities that, that ended up being very meaningful to me, and I've made friends all around the world from them. So there's, a, there's something that's there that, it's very powerful, and I've thought for many years that, but the internet in some sense is like, a, it increases the spread of outcomes that you can experience, right? Because now you have almost, you have a, a huge amount of the world's potential information, right? All the tons of books and Wikipedia articles and whatever to, to understand any subject. Or you can play Farmville. Or you can look at pornography all day, right? So you can either be the most distracted person or, or you can... Make yourself a so much more uh, informed person, and and actually embed yourself in useful communities through the internet. But it seems to me that the net effect is probably to the negative, and that even if you're the type of person who tries to make the positive happen, that well maybe the 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 systems are actually getting more and more sophisticated at at manipulating your behavior, and so I'm I'm. I'm curious and this is maybe this is too difficult of a question or something but the how do we recognize what was useful and 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 build a systems that we can maintain what was useful while starting to recognize how it's manipulating our behavior.
1: Yeah, it's a tough one. Um I think I think first of all there are going to be winners and losers and Uh, essentially the winners are going to be the people who can carve a constructive path through all of these reward stimuli that are fighting for their attention, um, fighting for their behavior and but I think most people have a hard time with that and they're going to honestly be ruled by their impulses and engage in destructive behavior and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in this country right now. and how do we find that path though i'm not sure i mean for myself i can literally feel the pull of reward on my behavior when it's strong Mm -hmm. and i've learned to identify that as a potentially problematic feeling it's not always problematic I mean, sometimes it's there for a reason and it's good, but especially when I feel reward and I know that that reward has been created by some corporate entity for its own profit motive, that to me is kind of a red flag.
0: That gets into a really interesting debate that you and I have had for a while, which is like, so we have these, these reward pathways that drive us towards negative behavior, but then we have maybe intrinsic Signals that are that are driving us in, in a positive way, if we can if we can tune into them. Right? So we, we've talked about regulation of appetite. Like, is there a positive regulation of appetite that you can tune into effectively, beyond right, beyond the the? Do you just have to rationally control what your food is, or is there actually a, like a point at which you can learn to listen effectively to your appetite? by learning to eliminate the things that manipulate that
1: appetite? Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty tall order, honestly. I think that that involves some pretty powerful conscious manipulation of unconscious urges, and I think that unconscious impulses, let's say, are very resistant to conscious control, and I think that's by design. Those are basically your fail-safes that, in an ancestral environment, keep you from doing stupid things like starving yourself.
0: But something is telling you that the reward that you're experiencing on Twitter is not worth the cost. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, sh- that's a longer-term system than the
1: system yeah. that's telling you that it's reward so, to go on Twitter. Right. So I guess the the distinction I would make is there's a difference between trying to control your behavior in the moment and planning in advance. And planning in advance is much easier than trying to control it in the moment. Because if you're sitting, and and just to, to create a concrete example of that, if you're sitting in front of pizza or brownies or ice cream or whatever your favorite food is, it's a lot harder to tell yourself not to eat that than if you're not sitting in front of pizza and brownies and ice cream, right? And so I think that's the key to... That's a key to regulate your um, impulses in a productive, constructive direction is to create an environment for yourself where you're feeding your brain the right incentives, essentially. And I mean... The incentives that I'm familiar with, most familiar with, revolve around food. Um, And I don't know as much about how you would do that for other incentives. But certainly, you know, one example from my life is um, not allowing myself to go to Twitter very often. And I'm making that decision in advance. I'm not putting myself in front of Twitter. Although it's hard when you have your computer in front of you and a click of a button and you're there.
0: So yeah, one of the a few things that I've been doing to kind of improve my social media hygiene is I, I, I have kids, right? So I wake up and I feed my kids and then I actually walk them to school. And so one of my rules is that I don't get to look at my feed of any, any electronic feed until after I get home from school. So that provides basically two hours that my brain is not... Immediately going into that reward cycle, um, and then another one that I've been trying to do is is to is to minimize how many windows I have open at any one time, so I can't click away. Mm. And also, if I am going to read something, I now tell myself you have to read the whole thing. You don't get to like mm. you don't get to uh, to reward your distractibility <laughs> by like having four different interesting articles mm. open and reading multiple at the same time. It's like, if your brain is too tired to continue reading this thing, stop and allow yourself to be bored for a second. And when your attention yeah. is, is ready again, you, you stay on task.
1: Yeah, makes sense. I think another thing that could work that has worked for me and that I think, um, could be a powerful tool is deleting certain things off your smartphone. So I deleted the Twitter app off my smartphone. That was the worst offender. I did that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I would wake up in the morning, just grab my phone, and then I was on Twitter. And half an hour later, I'm like, "What the hell happened?" Yeah. Um, but I mean, you could either also delete your browser or make it difficult to access, so that it is so that there's an effort barrier to get to it if you want to look something up on the internet that way you're not going to do it unless there's a really good reason to do it and get rid of all those apps like Facebook app and all that that kind of sucks you in and keeps you in. Maybe you have like the only type of media on your phone is like your Kindle app with books on it or something like that if you need to kill time or you're on the bus or something.
0: So, um, want to be respectful of your time. we should We should wrap up pretty soon. I think one of my central ideas is basically, what we need is, is cultural technology to deal with whatever the present problems are. And the the, fun- the fundamental problem that we have is that the environment is actually changing faster now than ever because of technology. Technology is expanding exponentially. So we, we exist in an obesogenic environment and what we really actually need to build is a cultural toolkit that helps us move through that in the same way that people who had to eat things that were potentially poisonous had to build a, t- a cultural toolkit that, that that got rid of the poisons. So before we, we break, could you break down what you currently think are the most important sort of cultural technologies that someone can adopt in order to control uh, their weight management over time?
1: Um, I think... Wow, yeah, that's a big topic, and I guess it, it all depends on what you mean by culture, but I'm assuming you mean like a, something that's not just about individual behavior, but something that's like about family or social behavior and is transmitted through generations.
0: Culture, to me, is um, it's repeated patterns of behavior that are, that are not uh, they're not innate right? That they're built, right? It's like a, we, it's like a form of technology basically that we carry forward in the future. So, so having, for instance, three meals a day is, is a cultural technology. One meal a day would be a cultural technology. Eating every time that you eat with somebody, with your family, that's a cultural technology. Eating, only eating and not eating and watching tech, uh, TV, that's, that's like those can be rituals. Those can be decisions that you make about the way that you, you operate that will have effects. So, um, you know, uh, the big things that I'm thinking about are things like, well, how do you use the grocery store? How do, you, where do you, how do you put food in your environment such that it's less likely to cause that? I love the experiment you talked about in the book of, uh, where they did the Hershey's Kisses, mm. right? If you have a, a ball of Hershey's Kisses on your desk versus in your drawer versus six feet away, yeah. what does that have an effect? And I, I think, I, like, my mom was lean and fit till, till she started an office job. And then she immediately gained 20 pounds. And she told me it was because there's M&Ms on everybody's mm. desks. It's like, she can't not eat the M&Ms. Yeah. And that, like, that's a decision that people could change, right? They could say, like, "Hey, let's not have sugar around yeah. the
1: office." it's amazing, though, to what degree people will rationalize the um, desire to have junk food around. It's some people are in, into making changes and not having that stuff around, and some people will fight tooth and nail to have their M and M's. It's powerful stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a lot of ways that we can um, behave culturally that would kind of um, passively control our food intake in a more um, in a more healthy and slimming direction. And by passively, I mean without having to you know explicitly and specifically exert willpower to control behavior. Yeah. Um, in the moment. Obviously, it takes some willpower in advance to make certain decisions to set yourself up in certain ways, but a lot less than just controlling yourself in the moment. So, uh, and a lot of this is stuff that I cover in the book, and I I can't um, fit it all in, but um, I think a really simple heuristic that you can use is to eat unrefined foods. I think that that is something that is it might kind of seem like common sense, it might seem trivial, but I think that is one of the basic things that you're gonna get most that you're gonna get the most value out of in your life if you apply it consistently. Unrefined foods tend to have a lower calorie density, they tend to have a lower palatability naturally, um, they tend to have more nutrients and fiber and essential and non-essential nutrients that tend to support health better. Um, So I think that's a really simple heuristic. I think um, active commuting is a really great simple heuristic. Um, I think that selecting foods based on their um, satiety per calorie is is a technology that you could apply. Um, I think cooking food for yourself is a, is a really simple cultural thing. I mean, if we look at how our, um, our, how our relationship with food has changed in the U.S. and in every affluent nation as the obesity epidemic has progressed, what you see is that we've gradually outsourced our food preparation to professionals, either the restaurant industry or the processed food industry that represented by foods in the grocery store we do a lot less work in the kitchen than we used to. We make a lot less food from scratch than we used to. We're letting other people do that. And those people's motivations are not necessarily, those people's motivations and goals are not necessarily aligned with all of our motivation and goals. And particularly when it comes to um, health and weight, they may not value those outcomes their primary thing that they value is getting you to engage in purchase behavior. And the ability to do that effectively tends to correlate with the ability to cause you to eat more because you make highly rewarding foods that reinforce purchase and consumption behavior. Um, so I think if you can take food processing back into your own hands and start having your guiding principles be the ones that you want to reinforce in your own life, whether it's health or weight or whatever, um, I think that is, is one way to do it. A lot of people don't know how to cook. You know, I think that um, in this country, we have kind of lost the ability to do that effectively, at least many people have. Part of that is because um, the food industry has eviscerated our, um, <clears throat> our home ec education, which used to actually teach people how to cook.
0: That's, a, that's what I mean by like cultural technology. Like, to me, maybe the, the biggest problem that I see is that we used to be creatures that had broad competencies. And we could largely, like, a hunter forger basically can accomplish all the primary tasks that are, that are that are necessary for the replication of their culture and for, right? And then, like, farmers maybe rely on somebody who makes the wheels and somebody who does this, but they can, they can broadly do the majority of it. And we live in a world where, where, where as a culture we have more capacity than we've ever had, and yet as individuals we're, we're more reliant on everybody else than we've ever been. And so, you used to have have to be able to sing, dance, cook, fight, run, hunt, gather, build, make fire, etc. And now most people can't do any of those things. They can only do one thing, which is yeah, whatever makes them money. This. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we've turned ourselves into to key peckers.
1: Yeah, I think there's basically two big reasons why most people don't like sitting in a classroom all day that much and they don't like working all day that much. One of them is that we evolved to be generalists who do many tasks over the course of the day instead of doing the same thing all day and that's just boring. And the the second one um, is that um, we evolved to be be intrinsically motivated by specific things that served our interest in an ancestral environment. Like little boys play with guns. Like anything that looks like a gun, they'll pick it up and basically boys gravitate toward the most powerful weapon, some representation of the most powerful weapon that they know of and they play with it. Yeah, and so like boys in, you know, hunter-gatherer cultures pick up a bow at like three years old and they just spend all day playing with it and by five, they're decent archers. And so... What we do today for work and in class are not things that align very well with our intrinsic motivations, and so I think between that and the repetitiveness, it's like i mean a hunter gatherer it's not it doesn't get up in the beginning in the early in the day and be like, "Oh, I have to go hunt animals or dig tubers again. I can't believe this
0: I feel like we could maybe do a whole other podcast on this because I think this is really fascinating because. I'm sure you're familiar with the research on rats that finds that, that addiction to cocaine is ameliorated by immersal in a highly enriching environment. So if they can run and play and socially engage and have sex and have good food, then then they're not addicted to cocaine. So we're addicted to food, we're addicted to pornography, we're addicted to drugs, we're addicted to all these things, partially it may be because our environment is so unrewarding. right? I uh, I, w- I, wanted to talk to you more about your research on hunter-foragers because I think that'd be a really interesting topic for us to talk about. But one of the ideas that I've come across in that literature is that there's not really a word that defines, there's not really a strong distinction between play and work in many hunter-forager cultures. That the thing that they say kids are doing when they're playing and the thing that they say that that, that adults are doing when they're doing productive work, they use the same word. Hmm. And that, that makes sense because Because we do what they do for work for fun. (laughs) Right? We garden. Yeah. We hunt. We fish. We go pick berries. All that basically is recreation. Yeah. And it's, well, it makes sense because we are motivationally set up to be rewarded by doing those things because they kept us alive. And we've been more and more having to take on tasks that are inherently not motivational. And, And I think that's a, it's a really fundamental problem and I'm not sure how we get a- around it. Um, maybe that's a topic for, for next time. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on, on what we've talked about. No, not really. Well, Stefan, thank you very much. It was a wonderful thank conversation you. as always. And uh, yeah, um, Stefan's blog is called Whole Health Source. Um, his book's called The Hungry Brain. Highly recommend it. Anything else that people should know about you and where to find you in your work?
1: Um, my Twitter handle is at WHsource. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still post things to Twitter, although I, uh, I'm i not engaging as much as I used to in back and forth. Yeah, so
0: definitely you've got to read the book if you're at all interested in, in the obesity epidemic, and you should be, and really a, many of the epidemics that we face because understanding more about the reward system and how the brain works will will help you understand the world that we live in. So... Thanks again, Stefan.